God, we come before you today, the day after Christmas. Many of us are tired. Maybe we're experiencing some disappointment. But I just want to ask at this moment that your spirit would just come and speak to us. That you would speak to our hearts the message we so need to hear from you. That you would give us your promise of hope and peace and encouragement despite what we're facing. And that you would use me, even me now. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christmas chaos, you made it through. How was it? Was it as chaotic as you thought it would be? Was there all kinds of family drama happening and meals being burned and all the things that we think might happen during Christmas? Or was it good? Was it peaceful? Here on this campus, we've been talking about Christmas chaos, but not just the chaos of shopping and the chaos of just trying to make the perfect holiday, but the chaos that happened when Jesus came to this world, when he stepped into this world and everything went crazy. Last week, we talked about Mary and Joseph and the chaos they experienced in saying yes to God. And the thing that we saw is that this is the story of Christmas, that first comes surrender, Mary and Joseph saying, God, it doesn't matter what it costs. I will put my life, my plans, my reputation on the line for you. All is available to you. That surrender always precedes Jesus is coming into the world and into our lives. And then often after surrender comes total chaos as Jesus puts some of our chaos in order but makes chaos out of the things that we think are in order so that they can more closely reflect him. And only after surrender and chaos is peace. And not the peace that we like to think of in Christmas, the one we put on our cards and the billboards, but the peace that comes from being right with God. We love the Christmas story. We talk about it every year. Maybe you've been talking about it at home. But today we are in part two of Christmas chaos and we are in part two of the Christmas story. And maybe last week when you heard about surrender, you thought to yourself, I've tried that and I'm still in the chaos, and everything went wrong. And everyone is trying to celebrate and be happy this Christmas, but I just can't, because I'm experiencing some hurt and disappointment toward God and some devastation that I don't even know what to do with. So today, if you're in the midst of hearing about peace and you're ready to pack away the tree, or maybe you love Christmas, but you just can't reconcile the tension between the hurt and the tragedies in this life and in this world, and the joy to the world of Jesus coming, then I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, to what happens after the Christmas story. Now, I have to warn you, this is the part of the Christmas story that all of Christendom, all Christianity has decided to ignore, because it's painful and it's difficult. We've decided to ignore it because it doesn't fit into our Christmas carols and our decorations. But maybe today, as you look into the second part of the Christmas story, what happens after the angels are done singing and after the shepherds have finished gawking at baby Jesus, maybe as you look at this, and maybe as you bring your answers and your questions as to why life is happening the way that it is and why it is so painful that we can't understand it, my prayer is that God would give us today his promise of peace. Not the one that so poorly stands up to the realities of this life. Not the one that looks cheap when confronted with the truth that some of us spent our last Christmas with loved ones that we know won't make it to next year. The kind of peace that this world offers that doesn't stand up to illnesses that don't get better and marriages that don't get better and hearts that don't stop breaking. 
My prayer is as we look at this story and some of the tragedy and chaos that surrounded the birth of Jesus, that we would experience God's peace and God's hope as we look through this. Matthew chapter two, starting with verses one through two. And it reads, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So we traditionally say that the wise men came and visited at the stable. So there was Jesus and there were the shepherds and there were the wise men. But what we know from studying this text and what many of you know is that the wise men actually didn't come till at least a year, possibly two years after Jesus was born. So the angels are done singing and life has just begun and Mary and Joseph have this baby and Magi from the East have come to worship Jesus because they're astrologers and they saw this star rise and in their understanding, this particular type of star denoted that a king had been born. And it was a king, not just for the Jews, but for all the world. And so people from a different part of the world come to pay honor to the king. And of course, if you're looking for the king of the Jews, you'll go to Jerusalem because that's the capital city. And of course, if you're looking for royalty, you'll go to the palace. So they went to King Herod and they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. But when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So they come to Herod, and instead of being overjoyed like they thought he would be, he was completely disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. And this is why. Herod was not your benevolent and kind ruler, not a nice king. He was an extremely insecure monarch. In fact, history tells us that he was so insecure about his rule that whenever anybody threatened, especially those in his family, this is what he would do. He put to death most of his children before he died because he was afraid that they would try to take over his throne. We only know the names of three of the sons, but we know there were more children. He put to death his favorite wife and her mother and her grandfather because he was afraid that she was conspiring with his kids to take over, only to find out after that that none of that was even true. And her grandfather had actually saved his life on one occasion. And then when it was time for him to die, he imprisoned one member of each chief family so that when he died, all of them could be slaughtered so that the whole nation could also be in mourning. He wanted them to be truly sad when he passed away. It's said that Caesar Augustus wrote that it's better to be a pig in Herod's household than his family member because he was a man who was very afraid that his rule would be taken away. So imagine a man like this, Magi come from the East and say, the heavens have told us that there is somebody who is going to be king of the Jews. This is not good news. He is disturbed, everyone is disturbed with him because everybody knows what happens when Herod gets disturbed. So he calls together the chief priests and the teachers and he says, where is he supposed to be born? And they look through scripture and wow, there's a prophecy about where in Bethlehem. What I find so interesting is that these magi have been traveling for a year to two years, but Bethlehem was only five miles away from Jerusalem, and none of the chief priests or teachers of the law 
thought it was worth it to travel five miles to see Jesus. And it reminds me how in, in this season, we spend so much time and so much energy and so much money celebrating Jesus's birth. But it is so easy for us to go through this season and never even recognize, never even recognize what Christmas is in our lives. So accessible, yet for them so far away. So the Magi come, Herod is extremely distressed and he calls them secretly and he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared, Matthew 2, seven through nine. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So imagine, you are a magi. There are probably more than three. And you've been traveling for over a year to finally arrive at this destination. You've been following this star, and it stops over a place, and you think to yourself, finally, I get to see a king. And it's not supposed to be a, a baby that will be king, but an actual royal child. What would you be expecting? A palace, royal guard, maybe some trumpeter singer people to announce. But this is where the star stopped. They saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. The star didn't stop over a palace. It didn't stop over a stable. It stopped over a house, which other translations can translate this as an inn. So maybe they finally found room in the inn in Bethlehem. But there was no palace and there was no royal guard, just a house, a baby, a poor baby with poor parents, no connections, not at all what they were expecting. Can you relate to that a little bit? Have you ever followed a star, believed that you were following God's will and then been disappointed? not led to a palace, just led to a house, something regular. You thought it was gonna be awesome and it was just regular. I don't know if you were all happy with the Christmas presents you received this year, but thinking about disappointment, I remember one time when I first started working in this conference just three years ago, I was told by all the pastors in this conference that the very favorite pastors meeting is this one where all these gifts are donated and then they pull names out of a hat so that everybody can receive a gift. And they were telling me, oh, last year I got a bicycle, I got a flat screen TV, I got an iPad, I got an iWatch. So for some reason, everyone kept talking to me about this pastor's meeting and telling me about all the awesome presents they're gonna be giving away. So finally, it was my turn to go to past that pastor's meeting. And I went and I remember sitting there and people were getting $200 gift cards to spa days and tons of people got iPads and a bunch of iWatches. I don't know who donates these presents. But I'm sitting there, and I'm anxiously awaiting my name being called. I'm so excited. And I'm sitting next to Pastor Milton, and he gets like $100 worth of gift cards and stuff. And then finally called my name, Samantha Angelis then. And they said, oh, this is going to be perfect for you because you're getting married. And they pulled out a $10 rice cooker. <laughs> and even worse... <laughs> My parents had heard about this meeting, so I was in Loma Linda staying with them that day, and I came home, and they're like, so what'd you get? <laughs> rice cooker. <laughs> I use that rice cooker, though. It's a good rice cooker. <laughs> so sometimes, like, stuff doesn't work out the way that we want. Sometimes we're just disappointed by how things turn out. Sometimes it's something as small as a rice cooker. <laughs> sometimes it's bigger stuff. 
Sometimes it's a job opportunity or a venture, a business venture that we tried that didn't work out the way that we hoped or a relationship that we started. The question is, what happens when we follow God's star and it leads us to a place that we did not expect? How do we deal with it when we look at 2015 and we started with such high hopes, the best year ever, and then we look back and it was the worst year ever. And there's nothing notable to celebrate and there's nothing to, that you feel like giving praise to God for. You followed a star and it led you to an inn instead of a palace. What do we do? John Maxwell says something about this situation. He says that strong Christians, they see God in both the good and the bad. The mature believer sees God not only in pleasures and palaces, but also in the barnyards and stables of life. That when we encounter those challenges, usually our response is to be angry at God and to say, God, why did you let me down? Why did you disappoint me? You said you had good plans for me. Why is it not working out? But what we learn as we look at this, we look at the wise men's example, we see their response, and it teaches us what ours should be too. They bowed down, and they worshiped that baby. They had no reason to. It was just a baby, like a poor baby. Did not look like a king. It didn't look like it ever had the possibility of being king. But they said, you know what? We have learned something from the divine, something bigger than I can see with my own eyes. And even if it does not look like it is a king, even though that does not look like Jesus, I'm gonna bow down and worship him. And not only that, but they gave. They gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, when we're disappointed at God, what we wanna do is hold back. You made me mad. I'm not gonna do my devotions anymore. You made me mad. Now I'm not gonna pray anymore. But that's not what these wise men did. That's why they're wise men. In the face of disappointment, wise men and women, they worship God and they give all that they have. They could have said, hey, you know what? I'll keep that myrrh and frankincense and gold. I'll give that to a real king. I'll give that to Herod. But instead, they gave it to Jesus. And as we know, Jesus' family will soon be told to to flee to Egypt in order to save Jesus' life. How else will they have afforded a poor family to go to another country and live there for a couple years if they had not been given the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh? See, in the midst of disappointment, the last thing we want to do is obey God. But we have no idea what's on the other side of our obedience to God. We don't know what God is going to do with our trust and our obedience when we say, listen, this is not what I wanted it to look like. But God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give you my worship and praise all of it. I'm not going to hold back from you. I'm going to be obedient to you. That's what these wise men did. Wise men and women in the midst of disappointment say, I'm not going to trust my eyes. I'm going to look for Jesus in this inn, in this stable. I'm going to worship him and I'm going to give. And finally, they were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, so they returned to their country by a different route. The other thing wise men and women do when they are disappointed with life is they let God change their plans. So hard for us to change plans. But these wise men, they had a plan of what they were going to do. But when the angel showed up, they said, okay, we'll do that. And they changed plans and go back to their country by another route. You know, usually, usually we stop at this part of the story. Usually it's like, yay, and the wise men, and they were so wise, so you be wise. That's usually how this Christmas part two Christmas story ends. But actually, this is where the chaos really begins. Joseph and Mary, they had chaos, real chaos. But what's about to come next is the part that we will not talk about. 
because it's too hard. It's too hard to deal with. It's too hard when our definition of peace in this world is freedom from disturbance, quiet and tranquility, silent night, holy night. This next part of the story does not fit in with this. But the thing is, if as Christians, all we're gonna do, if all we're gonna do is close our eyes to the pain and tragedy of this world and avoid people who are in pain and give cliches like, it was God's will and it's all gonna work out in the end, if that is the best we have to offer to a world that is in pain and a sin-sick world, that is not hope. We cannot settle for just this, that God has come to give us freedom from disturbance and quiet and tranquility. And the good news is, is that in all the chaos and the hurt in our lives, there are stories in the Bible that reflect the exact same thing. And this part that's coming next shows us what that is. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Nobody wants to see this in a nativity scene. Nobody wants to put this on their Christmas card, but it's real and it happened. In the midst of the light of the world coming down to earth, this awful tragedy happened. We don't understand it as well as we should. In fact, usually if you've seen the way it's portrayed, it looks like thousands and thousands of children were slaughtered. Because we know in Ezra chapter two that only 123 men actually returned to Bethlehem after the exile. We know that in that time period, scholars have said that it was probably more around 10 to 30 baby boys under the age of two that were killed. But that doesn't make it better, does it? It doesn't make it better that it wasn't thousands and thousands of children. The reality was is that Jesus was saved, but these little boys were not. And so we stand here, and maybe you sit there in your life and you wonder, God, How come I wasn't saved? Why wasn't I saved from the financial trouble? Why wasn't my marriage saved? Why wasn't my family member saved? What happened to peace on earth, goodwill to men? How do we deal with that in this Christmas season? We learned last week that the peace that Jesus talks about in scripture, Irene in Greek, It's not talking about a life with no problems. It's the state of a soul that's assured of its right standing with God through Christ. Peace on earth right now where we are is about being right with God. But what we always forget, what we always forget is that peace with God involves war with Satan and his work. Friends, I'm the same way. I don't want to have a hard life. We come to earth and what we want, we're on earth and what we want is to have a good life, a comfortable life. We want to be like on vacation in a resort. But what God has told us is that this is not this side of heaven. This side of heaven is war. This side of heaven, you have an enemy that wants to destroy you. This side of heaven, there is not always victory. And we can't pretend like there's always victory. Yes, there are miracles. Yes, God answers prayers. But sometimes it doesn't work out the way that we want because we are not on vacation. We are at war. 
And what scripture tells us is that we have an enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Our expectations completely change our experience of life. If we expect life to be great and perfect and God is our delivery system for all the things that we want and making everything go well, no wonder so many people are so disappointed and angry at God. If what we teach is that belonging to God means that your life goes good, no wonder we run the moment that we come across challenges. It doesn't matter that all over scripture, it says don't be surprised at this fiery trial that you're experiencing. When they come, we're surprised and we're unhappy and we're mad at God and we just wanna go away. But we have an enemy, an enemy, the devil. I want to take you back a little bit to before Jesus came. Because there's something about Christmas that we don't understand. We like to think that Christmas is a birthday party, but it actually wasn't. This is the state of the earth, according to Desire of Ages, chapter three, that God looked down and saw before Jesus came. The son of God, looking down upon the world, saw how men had become victims of satanic cruelty. He looked with compassion upon those who were being corrupted, murdered, and lost. They had chosen a ruler who chained them to his car as captives. Bewildered and deceived, they were moving on in gloomy procession toward eternal ruin, to death in which is no hope of life, toward night to which comes no morning. God looked down on earth and he saw Satan, who Jesus calls the prince of this world, He owns this world, why? Because God gave the world to us and we gave it away. And he looked down and he saw the captives and he said, this world is in such bad shape. Satan even got the religious leaders. Hardly anybody recognized Jesus was born and they were all like their one job, they had one job, was to look for Jesus' coming. And they all missed it. Even the guy who was dedicating Jesus in the temple totally didn't even know who he was holding in his arms. And Jesus looks down and he sees his people caught as captives. And meanwhile, the other worlds, the ones who are unfallen, are watching with intense interest. They waited, they watched to see Jehovah arise and sweep away the inhabitants of the earth because we had given our hearts, people had given our hearts to evil. But instead of destroying the world, God sent his son to save it. Though corruption and defiance might be seen in every part of the alien province, a way for its recovery was provided. At the very crisis when Satan seemed about to triumph, the Son of God came with the emissage of divine grace. You see, we think Christmas is a birthday party, but it was not. Christmas was an invasion. You see, this world belonged to the enemy, and God said, my people are captive, and I will go into enemy territory as a vulnerable baby to set my people free. Christmas is an invasion. God, who could have swept us all away, coming to earth to say, I bring hope. And not hope that it's gonna be perfect now. We're not gonna be delivered now. That's what the Jews of the day wanted. But I'm here to bring hope. And the massacre of the innocents, the way John Eldridge describes it, Christmas is an invasion. But what it was, it was the kingdom of God striking at the heart of the kingdom of darkness with violent repercussions. Friends, sometimes, sometimes the kingdom of God strikes in the heart of the kingdom of darkness in our lives, and there are violent repercussions. And it's not because he doesn't love us. And it's not because he has forgotten us. It is because we are at war. This world is at war and you know it. We can't pretend, we can't pretend it's not war. 
It does not help us to ignore our enemy when he has declared war on us. We can't keep fighting each other, fighting our families, angry at God. God says, you're at war, gird up, get your weapons, your shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. All of those things he talks about in Ephesians, he says, prepare for war, because that's where we are right now. But here's the incredible thing. The enemy declared war on that, on the city of Bethlehem. But he did not get Jesus. Jesus escaped. And at first when I heard this story, I thought, well, that's great for Jesus. But he didn't escape to live a beautiful and perfect life. No, he was despised and rejected of men. He escaped so that he could live a perfect life in the midst of all our chaos and die for our sins. But the thing that's so important to remember in the midst of this chaos and pain and darkness is the promise in John 1, 5, the light shines in darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Friends, when you belong to God, when you have submitted your heart and your life to God, there will be darkness. There are violent repercussions of this war and it is not God sending it on you because he doesn't like you. But the enemy, no matter what he does, even if he takes our very lives, he cannot extinguish the hope of the world. He could not extinguish that hope that came through the baby and he cannot extinguish the hope in your life. And God has a promise for us to us who are today living in a sin-sick and broken world, where just this week, family, a family from Loma Linda visiting in Escondido, seven of them, they went back home to Loma Linda and the car rolled and four passed away. Some children, three in the hospital. In the face of France and these shootings, in the face of your pain and the things that are happening in your life and mine, this is the promise that we hold to. Revelation 21, three through five. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This is our promise. You see, the Jews expected a savior that would come and save them right then, and we expect that too. And when stuff doesn't happen the way we want, we say, you're not really God. But our hope of peace is not peace and no problems. It's the peace that we hope for that one day that this war will be over. One day this war will end and God will come, not just as a baby for a short amount of time, but he will come and make his dwelling with us forever. He will be with us forever and he will say, I am making all things new. The very things you thought were broken forever, the things the enemy tried to steal from you and destroy in your life, I am going to come to make all things new. That is the hope of Christmas. It's not a hope that can't stand up to the challenges of life, and it's not a hope that ignores it either. It's a hope that says this world is painful and broken and hard. We are at war. We have an enemy, but we also have a king. We have a king that was willing to risk it all, to invade enemy territory, to set us free, even though we still don't deserve it. And that is the promise God has for us in the midst of the pain and the hurt and the challenges. I've shared this before, but I want to share with you a story that I often recall that is such an encouragement. It's about Ellen White, as you know, an important voice in our faith. 
who experienced so many trials and challenges. She had children pass away, marital troubles, if you read through the writings, often sick, often poor, often no place to stay and sleep. But in the face of all of these challenges, she one night went to sleep and had a vision. And she had a vision that she had gone to heaven. And she and everyone who had chosen God and been faithful were standing before the throne. Somehow, they had finally arrived and they were standing before the throne. And she said, we tried to call up our greatest trials, but they looked so small compared with the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that surrounded us that we could not speak them out. And we all cried out, hallelujah, heaven is cheap enough. The world that we experience and go through, the things we experience, they are costly They cost us everything and we feel that cost. But the promise that we have as believers is that one day when we stand before God and eternity is so much longer than the life that we live here on earth, that one day we will look back and say, that old thing, oh, it was so worth it. It was so worth it to stand in the presence of God. Does it make our pain go away right now? No, but it gives us hope that this world is not all that there is. This moment and this situation that we are in is not all that there is. So friends, follow the example of the wise men today. If you're in disappointment and you're looking at 2015, like, God, why did this happen to me? And is there anything good to experience? Seek God. He's there. He's in a form we don't expect. Seek God. Give him your all. Give him your worship. Be obedient. Choose to surrender every day and fix your eyes on eternity. This world is not all there is. We are at war, friends. But gird up for war. Get ready. Fight with your Savior because victory is assured. It is an unstoppable, inevitable victory over all the pain that happens in this world. That is our promise of Christmas today.